The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran out on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw such a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it is already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that it would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed to have directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on, the, on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because all they saw him, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Genesee, and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who were touched, touched it were healed. Amen. You can have that. Hey, we're going to pray, and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray together. Um, God, we thank you so much that this morning we can gather together and encourage one another. Lord, it it is a good thing that we aren't saved by ourselves as individuals, but we're saved as a community. And we pray that this morning, Lord, that as we gather, that you would be here, that your spirit would be pointing us to Jesus, and that we would see him as greater than anything else this world has to offer. Lord, we pray that you would do this in us, we pray that you would change us, and we pray that as we leave today that we would have a stronger faith because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a a documentary going around uh, on Netflix at the moment called Wild Wild Country. Uh, If you've heard of it or if you haven't, it's uh, of a cult called the Rajneeshis from the 1980s. 
If you were alive back then, you might remember it. Now, if you're planning to watch this documentary uh, without giving you any spoilers, it got up to some pretty terrible stuff, and there are some pretty horrible scenes. But this, is, this documentary is doing the rounds at the moment. And like I said before, it's called, they're called the Rajneeshis, and it's based on a guy called Bhagwan. Now, Bhagwan was uh, basically taught some stuff as an offshoot of Hinduism. But as I was watching this documentary, there was something about the Bhagwan that really caught my eye. And this is the picture of him here. Now, what's your gut reaction when you see him there? When you see this guy, see, uh, when I saw him, uh, and on top of that, so not only, I mean, you see him throughout this documentary like that, but he also took an oath of silence in the first kind of four years of this movement in America. And uh, so every time you see this guy, he's smiling, he's looking like that, right? He's got these really nice kind of eyes, these friendly eyes. And when you see him, you kind of think, okay, this must just be a really nice gentle, old guy that's really looking out for his people. Right? That's kind of how I feel when I see this guy. It's not until you kind of work through the documentary that you start to realize, and then he starts to speak, that you start to realize that actually he's not that great a leader at all. In fact, he's pretty terrible. Right? It seems on the surface as this nice, gentle, humble guy, but when you get to know him, he's horrible and capable of terrible harm. Now, now, we can move on from the bag one, because I think if we keep looking at him, it'll do something to us. But it does get me thinking, right, when you see or hear of cults or movements like this, or you watch documentaries, kind of gets me thinking about Jesus and wondering if Jesus is kind of anything like this, right? Like, when we look at Jesus, what's he like? And is he kind of just this kind of guy that's nice on the surface, but when you really start to dig in, realize that he's not that great a leader? Like, what is Jesus like? Is he like Bhagwan? Is he nice, humble, gentle looking, but digging deeper he's not, right? And then he doesn't speak that much either. Is that what he's like? Or is he like some of our leaders today that we have who kind of speak a little bit too much, get paid to speak as well, and we wish they wouldn't speak? Is that what he's like? Or is Jesus kind of like the, you know, the picture we get from those old school Jesus videos or movies, you know, where you're not really sure what to do with him? Because he kind of looks nice and gentle and, and a good leader, but at the same time, you're pretty sure he's a model and you've seen him from the Maya catalog, right? I mean, what is he like? What's Jesus actually like? And not just out of interest's sake, not just because we're curious, like when we watch a documentary, but because the reality is today, as we've gathered here, all of us have some sort of picture in our head of what Jesus is like. Right, like all of us now, if we thought about it, have some sort of image in our head of, of what he's like. Right? Some of us think that maybe he's disappointed in us. Right? And he's just constantly disappointed in us because we just constantly let him down. For some of us this morning, we kind of just think that he's this nice, gentle guy, but actually kind of weak. For some of us, we, we have this different picture of Jesus. And so the question we want to ask this morning is, what is Jesus like and what kind of leader is he? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this eyewitness account and we're going to see this. We're going to see what Jesus is like. So if you have your Bibles there, have them open, although it'll be on the screen. We pick it up from where we left off last week in verse 30. This is how Mark continues to record his eyewitness account. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, 
Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. What's Jesus like? Well, Mark's going to show us in this passage what he's like, but he's not going to do that through listing Jesus' traits, right? We're not going to get his, what he got on the Myers-Briggs personality test, and that's how we're going to see what he's like. Mark shows us what Jesus is like through showing us what Jesus did. And we see in this first section here that Jesus is compassionate and kind and he's a wonderful leader. And we see that through how he shows he's better than their desires. Now, uh, what we see going on here. So the apostles gather around. Remember the disciples last week, they went on mission. They took nothing but sandals, a staff, um, and a tunic. They came back there talking to Jesus about what they did. Now, when they get there, there's obviously lots of people around, and Mark says they didn't even have a chance to eat, right? You ever had one of those days where you just kind of get through the day and you forgot that you didn't even have lunch? This is one of those days, right? This is one of those days for their disciples, and Jesus sees that they don't have a chance to eat, sees that they're tired and exhausted, and he says, come away, let's go to a solitary place and get rest, Right now, already we see and start to get this picture of what Jesus is like. Right? Notice he doesn't push them beyond what they can handle. Notice he doesn't push them until they're burnt out and they hate the whole thing. Notice he doesn't pay them out because they're weak. Right? You're struggling after one meal. I did 40 days. Right? Pick your game up. No, he doesn't do any of that. He sees their weakness. He sees what they're going through and he says, let's go, let's get some rest. He's a compassionate God. He cares for his people. And so he says, let's go get some rest. So they go to a solitary place and get rest. Now this, for some of us, sounds like a really good thing, right? Introverted time. Go to a quiet place with people who know you and know that you just need some time by yourself, right? We're not interrupted. People aren't going to talk to you. You can just have your chance to rest by yourself. For some of us, this sounds like the dream. So what happens next sounds like the nightmare. Because as they get to this solitary place, they're met by thousands of people. Crowds, right? We're told later on it's about 5,000 men. We can include women and children in that as well. There's probably over 10,000 people here. And they're all wanting attention. They're all wanting something from them, energy from them, right? They're going for rest and they get met by crowds. Now, how do you react when your rest is interrupted? How do you react in that moment, right? Because we've all been there. Whether we're finished school for the term, uh, whether we're finished our exam block, whether it's just been a, a big shift at work, or we're finished at the end of the day at work, or whether we've just put the kids to bed and we've got our plan in our heads what we're going to do. Right? We're going to sit in front of TV, in the front of the TV with a drink. We're going to sit there, we're going to have our phone out and scroll through, catch up on all the things we missed. We're going to do both of those at the same time and no one's going to speak to us or we're going to read a book, right? We're just going to get our own time on. We're just going to sit there and read and and that's going to be great, right? Or or for some of us, we're going to plan to to catch up with people who are low cost and talk to them and, and that's going to be great for us, right? You've got that plan, you're ready for that rest, the hours ahead of that rest and then it gets interrupted, 
right? You know the feeling on the way home from work, traffic. What was a 15-minute trip is now an hour trip, right? You're feeling this, your rest gets interrupted. You get home, someone else is watching the TV. You get home, you're confronted with the dishes you forgot to wash up. You get home, you sit down, you pull your phone out, and someone starts talking to you. Imagine, right? You're just trying to rest here, or the worst one, right? And if we're not here yet, it's coming for us. We put the kids to bed, we sit down, watching TV, and then we hear the door open. And we hear those steps along the carpet, and the words you never want to hear after 8 p.m. I need a water. (laughs) How do you react in that moment? In that moment, what's your reaction there? Right? Because I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed at that. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they're going for rest. They're confronted by crowds. How do they react in this moment? Specifically, how is Jesus going to react in this moment? Right? What's he going to do? Is he angry about this? Is he frustrated, annoyed about this? His plan's just been ruined. So what's he going to do? Well, we, we see it in verse 34. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion on them. Right? His rest has just been interrupted by crowds, and instead of getting annoyed or angry, he feels for them. He cares for them. He has compassion on them. And here in this moment, we start to see what he's like. He's a compassionate God. He's a kind God who cares for his people. And so he sees that they're like a sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He teaches them, and then he feeds them in a pretty amazing way as well. We see that from verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day. So Jesus has taught them for a bit. His disciples came to them and said, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so uh, so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages by themselves and buy themselves something to eat. Who else among us is saying that same thing? Just send them away, Jesus. Right? Just let us have a moment by ourselves. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wage. So saw the other day the average wage in Australia, across Australia, I think I saw 50 grand. Right? So they're essentially saying here, that would take $25,000. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Okay, so here's the picture. Thousands and thousands of people on this countryside. The disciples have this job now to feed these people. They go around and they find out what they've got. And all there is is five loaves and two fish. Barely enough to do Sunday lunch. Okay, that's what we've got here. That's the picture here. Right, so what does Jesus do? Well, verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Now notice here, just before we get to verse 42, right? He's not, this is not like the Lord's Supper where they're cutting the bread up into those little squares right? and sending that out and everyone gets a, a bit of bread and maybe a little bit of fish or one of the other. right? No, because verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 uh, basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. 
We see what Jesus is like here, right? He's compassionate. He's kind. He cares for his people. And we see that through the way that he, he gives his disciples rest. He, he cares. He teaches this people. And then he feeds them. But like in so much of Mark, what we see going on in, feeding, in the feeding of the 5,000 is so much bigger than just the surface level. What's going on here in Mark is so much bigger. In fact, there's two massive things that are going on in the feeding of the 5,000. The first thing going on is that Mark is showing us once again, like he did last week, that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. In fact, he is the one the Old Testament spoke about. Right? Mark wants us to see that explicitly. Here is the guy that for thousands of years, Jewish people were looking out for. This is someone different. In fact, this is not just an ordinary teacher or another teacher or a special prophet, but this right here amongst them is God. Right now, we see this because what Mark does for us is again alludes to Exodus. Now, we saw last week, right, in Exodus, the people crossed out of slavery to the promised land. Okay, they, all they could take is sandals, tunic, and a staff, the same thing the disciples could take. They go into the, they, they leave slavery, they cross the Red Sea, and then they're on the way to the promised land. Now, if you know the story, um, there's something stopping them from instantly stepping into the promised land, and that's the wilderness, right? So, or, or you could describe it as a solitary place. Right, so here they've got to cross the wilderness to get to the promised land. Right, now, it takes them about 40 years longer than it should have, but eventually they get there. Now, when you read through the Exodus story, the people, uh, God's people, right, they didn't take snacks. Right? We saw that last week. They didn't take anything but the staff, sandals, and a tunic. They didn't take you know, extra food. They didn't take cattle. They just left, and yet they didn't starve. They didn't die of starvation. Why? Because God provided for them. And what did he provide for them? Bread and meat, right? Literally manna and fish and, and uh, quail, but it was bread and meat. Now here in Mark, what we see going on is the same kind of thing here. You've got people in a solitary place, right? In this kind of wilderness, if you want to use that language. They're hungry, and yet Jesus miraculously provides for them to feed them all so that they're all satisfied and there's leftovers, right? Now, we all know that what Jesus is doing here is something no one else can do, right? This isn't what your mum can do when you go over and say, we're all here. Is it okay if we have dinner, right? And maybe you are the mum in that situation, and you perform a miracle to feed the 5,000, Right? And, and all you've done is go to the deep freezer and pull out the meat and the stuff that you've previously cooked. Right? Jesus isn't doing that. He doesn't have a deep freezer right, full of 25 grand's worth of bread and fish. That's not what's happening here. Right? No, Jesus is miraculously providing for them. He is making something appear out of nothing. He's doing something only God can do. There's no one else in the world that can do this. No other teacher that has ever existed in the history of humanity that can do this. But here, Jesus is showing us what he's like. He is the God of the Old Testament. Now, we'll see this theme again before we finish off this passage. But that's the first big thing in the feeding of the 5,000. But the second big thing here is what Jesus is referring to where he says that they're like a sheep without a shepherd. So uh, when Jesus says that, the idea he's not getting at is kind of the picture that I have growing up of the city in the city of a sheep, right? Which is a petting zoo, 
where there's like lambs and stuff like that. And Jesus is not saying, right, this is just a lamb that got no attention. Right? I know that you weren't thinking of that, but that's kind of what I think of when I think of sheep and, and shepherds. Jesus is not getting at that idea. In fact, shepherds were people that needed to fight off lions and bears to protect their sheep. And in the Old Testament, the shepherds were referred to, or the leaders of God's people were referred to as shepherds. Right? So shepherds is kind of the same as leaders here. Right, the leaders of God's people. So Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then that's why he teaches them, first and foremost. He recognizes there are people here hungry to be led. Okay, so we hold on to that. Jesus sees that there's a people here hungry to be led, and he's happy to be their leader. Then we've got this people here. Now, in Israel at the time, they were looking for this guy to come from the Old Testament. And what they were hoping would happen was someone would come and in power and authority take over Rome and kind of make Israel great again. Right? That's what they wanted in a leader. I don't know what the campaign was. I don't know if they had hats. I'm sure someone made some money off it somewhere. But that's what they were looking for in this leader. Someone who would come in power, in authority, and just like destroy Rome and uh, make Israel great again. Okay, so, so we hold those things together. Now, here we are in this solitary place. Here we are. We've got Jesus, who we know is a big deal. Okay, we've seen that, right? We've got Jesus, a great leader. We've got the disciples, and then we've got thousands of people here. I mean, doesn't this sound like a great place to build a commune? Right? Maybe set up some farms, Get some huts going. You know, everyone can kind of help out there. They can, you know, grow together. Everyone can have a job. And then from there, after some training, they can go and take Rome. Right? I mean, they've got enough people there to build an army or to make an army. They've got 5,000 men there, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but why does Mark mention the men here? But that's weird, right? He's not a sexist. I mean, in two chapters' time, he tells of Jesus feeding 4,000 and there's men, women, children, there's everyone there, right? Mark's not a sexist, so why does he mention men? Well, I think if we're expecting a leader to come and destroy Rome, this is the time to go for it, right? Right here, right now, in this quiet place, in this wilderness place, in this solitary place, build people up, train them for months, you can go under the radar, people aren't going to know about it, and then in a few months' time, take these 5,000 men who are keen to be led, who want to be led, and go into Rome, right? We're expecting what happens next as this massive battle that takes place in Rome. Jesus makes Israel great again, and that's it. But what happens? What do we see happen? I mean, if we're hoping for a fight, this is an anticlimax because in verse 45, Jesus tells his disciples to go and then dismisses the crowds and then goes by himself and prays. This is not what we were expecting. So why does Jesus do this? It's because he shows us what he's like. Right? It shows that he is a compassionate God that's not about to abuse the power that he has. He's not about to manipulate these people to do what they want. And he's not going to fold and listen to them either. Jesus is a compassionate God and a kind God. But at the same time, he's also not a God that's scared of a fight. It's just Jesus in compassion and kindness recognizes that if he's going to fight, he's not going to stuff around with Rome. He's going to go after the biggest enemy. Right? They wanted a leader to go in power to take Rome, but Jesus went in humility to the cross 
and died. And Jesus did that to defeat not Rome, but the bigger enemy, the enemy that could send us to hell. And so Jesus went in compassion and in kindness, going to the cross, dying to take our sin on him to defeat sin, so that sin could no longer hold us down. Jesus went to the cross to defeat death. And as he rose again, he did defeat death so that death could no longer hold us down. He went to the cross and as he did, he disarmed Satan and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, giving them no power to accuse us. And as Jesus did this, he shows what type of leader he is. God of compassion and kindness, who's not going to settle with giving us something physical, Right? but it's going to go after the eternal to secure for us eternal life. Jesus is better than anything these people desired. They don't realize that, but he's so much better. Jesus is better than what the sheep recognize. Jesus is better than anything that we can desire. Right? And ultimately, he shows that for us in compassion and in kindness in the fact that he is for us and for our good as he went to the cross. Not as he secured for us comfort here and now. And so we see that in this first passage, right? This first section. We see who Jesus is. We see what he's like, what type of leader he is. We see his compassion as he shows his people he's better than what they desire. But as we keep moving, we see, we continue to see more of what Jesus is like. And Mark shows that in this final section from verse 45. This is what he says. Immediately, well, sorry, we'll start at 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples go into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. He dismissed the crowd after leaving them, went up to the mountainside to pray. Later that night, verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over... They landed at Gennesaret and anchored there, and as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was and wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countrysides. They placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Again, what's Jesus like? Well, he shows not only is he better than our desires, He's bigger than our fears. And we see that in this passage through two of these big things that happen. The first one is that Jesus walks on water. Right? Jesus walks on water. So he sends his disciples uh, to Bethsaida to get on the boat and go. And after he prays, it gets to just before dawn, so about 3 a.m. in the morning, and he decides he's going to catch up to them. Now, he doesn't do what we would do and just get in a quicker boat or run around the lake, Jesus physically walks on top of the water. Okay, this is not a magic trick, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen those magic tricks where the, you know, the magician walks on water on TV or YouTube, whatever it is, right? Um, I've seen them. Yes, it's impressive, right? I don't know how they do it, and I'm happy not to know how to do it, but I do know it's not real, 
right? There was some, they set that thing up. They, I'm sure they paid the crowds to be there and act surprised and all that sort of stuff. But credit where it's due, like it looks kind of cool. This is not what Jesus is doing though, right? Like he didn't set this up when the disciples were hanging out with the crowds and feeding them. He set up this glass kind of thing under the water so he could pretend to walk on the water. It's not what happens. He physically walks on top of the water. He does something here only God can do. Right? Again, we see this, can't we? No other leader in history can walk on water, but Jesus does. And he shows us something again about what he's like. He shows us that he's God. Now, kind of cool, in Job 9, Job speaks about the difference between humanity and God. And one of the things he says in Job chapter 9 is that he says, God can stretch his hands out over the skies. Like, we can't do that. And then he says, God can tread on the waves. Right? He's showing us, this is something only God can do. And that's what Jesus is showing us. That's what Mark is showing us. He's doing something only God can do here. He is physically walking on the water that he made. Right? And he can because he's God. Now, as he walks over, we see in verse 48, it kind of feels like he didn't mean to stop, right? That's kind of how it's written, that his plan was just to walk past them, get to the other side. The disciples go, you know, that experience, how'd you beat us here? Jesus says, I walked on the water. They say, nice joke. They laugh about it and tell the story to their kids. And that's what it feels like that's going on, except as they walk, as he walks on the water, they see him and they freak out which we all would have done in that space. You know, like on the water, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. You know, you're straining against the waves. The wind's heavy and you look out and you just see a, a guy walking there. All of us are freaking out at that point, right? In fact, I'm jumping in. I'm done. I'm jumping into the water. That's, that's game for me. They're freaking out, right? They see Jesus. He's kind of walking past, but when he sees that they're freaking out, when he sees that they're frightened, immediately he comes and he comforts them. Again, do you see what he's like? Right? You see how compassionate and how kind this God is. He comes over and he comforts them and he says to them, take heart, it's I. Literally what Jesus is saying here is this, take heart, I am. That's what he's saying here. Take heart, I am. Now, this is huge in the context of the Bible. Again, in Exodus, right? Now, I don't know what it is. Maybe Jesus knew Exodus well or Mark knew Exodus well. But again, in Exodus, when Moses, before he takes the people out to slavery, speak, God speaks to him and says, okay, I'm going to use you. Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God says to him, say the I am sent you. Right now, whenever you read in your Old Testament Bibles, Lord in capital letters, this is what it's getting at, the personal name of God. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's literally the idea, I am who I am. Right now, when Jesus says this here, he is referring to something that Jewish people wouldn't dare say out loud. He's saying, I am is with you. The God of the Old Testament is with you. And I think he has every right to do that because he's just walked on the water. right? And so he says to them, take heart, be comforted by the fact that the God who made the water is here on the boat with you. Be comforted by the fact that the God who made the sun and the waves and the moon and the stars who created this world is standing in your presence. And they're amazed by that. 
Now, now we saw last week with these disciples, right? They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. There's points where they get it. There's points where they don't. But here in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of God, in the middle of this storm, with the I am with them, they are comforted by this fact. And so we see right in this passage what God is like, what Jesus is like. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is God. He's not like any other leader. And then we see they get to the other side. And Jesus heals people in just kind of an absurd way, really. I mean, people, everyone's getting healed, right? It's like a scene of Oprah where he's just going, you get healed and you get healed and you get healed. That's kind of what it feels like because everyone's getting healed. This contrast between what happened in Nazareth here now, I mean, people are even touching the corner of his cloak and they're being healed, right? And again, we see what Jesus is like. Teachers, ordinary teachers can't do this. Even extraordinary earthly teachers can't do this. But here stands in their presence someone different. Someone who is compassionate and kind and merciful. Someone who loves them and cares for them and has power over their fears, who is bigger than their fears. And so as we finish this passage, we see, don't we, what Jesus is like. We see he's so good. He's so good to us. He's so compassionate and he's so kind. We see what he's like. We see what type of leader he is. But the question is, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us here today and for the rest of our weeks and for the rest of our lives? Because I think the thing is, right, not just is that a good question for us to grapple with, but also because as we read this passage, we see that there's something that doesn't always happen from this passage and something that does always happen. Right? See, the temptation is with that first one, with the stuff that doesn't always happen. Temptation is, as we read this, to go, cool, Jesus is bigger than the storm. Jesus is bigger than sickness. Jesus is bigger than whatever situation I find myself in. And so Jesus, when I trust him, will relieve whatever I'm going through. But our experience tells us that's not true. In fact, the Bible will tell us that's not true. Right? We can't always assume that God will get us out of the storm or that God will heal the sickness or that God will deliver us from the present situation. Right? We pray for that. We believe that. We hope that. But even if God doesn't, we know that he's still God and he's still good. But there is something in this passage that is always true that will never change and it's who Jesus is. It's what he's like the compassion that he showed to the disciples, the compassion that he showed to the people is the same compassion that he shows to us. And when we come to trust in him, the hope we have is that whatever happens in our life, he is here with us and our souls can be refreshed by the fact that the shepherd, the I am, is here with us. Right? This is so good that we can see this, whether the storm calms, whether the sickness is healed, whether the situation lifts. We can know because of who Jesus is, that he's good, that he's compassionate, that he's here with us. And we see this in this passage, don't we? We see what he's like. We see how the, what this means for us. But throughout the Bible, we get this beautiful picture of what Jesus is like, of what God is like, of what knowing God means in our lives. And there's another beautiful passage that tells us what it means for us. It's another passage that speaks of the Lord being our shepherd. And it's actually in Psalm 23. 
If you know Psalm 23, you know that Psalm 23 starts with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? And many of us, if we've been around church for any kind of amount of time, know how beautiful Psalm 23 is. It's a powerful psalm. It's amazing, an, an amazing psalm to us, but even, even to our world. Right? There's even times where people who aren't Christians see how good Psalm 23 is. In fact, I remember a few years ago, um, I went to a funeral of a lady that wasn't a Christian. And after uh, they spoke about her life and stuff like that, they played Psalm 23. Now, the people that were sitting there, it didn't mean anything to them either. But in some sense for them, there was kind of just this kind of sense that they get from Psalm 23 that they can take comfort in that. Now, it's heartbreaking when you see that, right? It's horrible when you see that because we know the truth and it's unless you know who the shepherd is, Psalm 23 doesn't bring any real confident comfort. Unless you know who the shepherd is, right? Unless you know that it's Jesus, unless you put your trust in him, Psalm 23 doesn't mean anything. Or if it does, it doesn't mean as much as what it means when we know Jesus. So this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to read Psalm 23 out now. It's going to be on the screen for us. And as I do, I want you to think about the stuff that we've just heard in Mark, Right, the themes that we've just heard in Mark, because there's so much in it that, that just applies directly to what we just saw uh, in Jesus in Mark. This is what Psalm 23 says. It's a psalm of David, and this is what he writes. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the, path, on, along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." This is so good, right? And you might have held on to this, memorized this at some point in your life. But when we see Jesus, this fills this psalm out. It brings it to life. And we start to realize fully what David could see in part. See, when David said in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He saw in part. But we see in full who this shepherd is. And we see why in Jesus we lack nothing. Because he gives us everything that we need. That he's better than anything else this world can have. And even if we lose everything, even if, the storm, even if the storm destroys us, we have Jesus and we can confidently say, I lack nothing. He goes on, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. What David sees in part, we see in full. Right now, I don't know what to do with the green pastures like the green pastures we saw in Mark. I don't know what to do with the quiet waters like we saw in Mark. But what I do know is that when we know that Jesus' presence is with us, when the great I am is here with us, for us, who has conquered sin and conquered death, that's when we find refreshment for our soul. That's when we, that's when we can find true restoration. 
when we know that the I am is here for us and with us in the storm, in the sickness, in the situations that we face. David writes, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, what David saw in part, we see in full. We see why we can fear no evil, because Jesus destroyed it at the cross. We see why we can hold on to this and go through whatever dark places that we're going through, knowing that Jesus is for us and with us and shows compassion to us, that the shepherd is here for the sheep. And then Jesus, and then David writes, Finally, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What David saw in part, we see in full. We see why we can dwell in God's house forever. We see why we will have our lives where God. God's goodness and kindness and love will follow us forever because we know Jesus. We know the shepherd. We know the God who is compassionate and kind and good to us. You see how good our leader is? You see how good our king is? You see how good Jesus is. He's better than anything this world can offer you. He's better than anything you'll find in this world. He is truly better And when we see him for who he is, it's so good to us. And as we see Jesus, we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. We can say with confidence, we'll dwell with him forever. How good is this? Let's pray and celebrate this together. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are better than anything that we can find in this world. You are compassionate. You are kind. Even when you're interrupted, you're good. And, and we see that not just in how you showed yourself in Mark, but we see that in how you go to the cross and how you die for us. God, we pray that we would remember and celebrate how good it is, how good you are to us. Not just in who you are, but in what you've done in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.